This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, we have talked often on this show about your various trips to VoucherCon. I have been to one VoucherCon. That was the one opportunity that you and I had to meet together. So I'm looking forward to seeing you in Minneapolis this year at VoucherCon. You're going to VoucherCon this year? And I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that does it. I'm canceling my flight. (laughs) Oh, that's so cool that you're going, though. I I haven't been since 2019, I guess, because 2020 is when COVID hit and everything just kind of shut down. And right now, I don't really have any books coming out. And I just haven't gotten back into the swing of things. I'm still just struggling to write a book to finish a book that's going to be like the biggest triumph so yeah i'm not going and i'm so excited that you are and so jealous yeah i i was so so pleased when i had the opportunity to go um because i had such a good time at the 2019 VoucherCon, the one that was in dallas yeah and uh it, it just it, this is one of my favorite shows just the nature of the show where it's 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 a lot of authors a lot of people in the publishing business and a lot of fans, a lot of readers. Yeah, so that's, it's very this is such a unique show. In, you mean in conference? Yes, conference. Yes, <laughs> in that it's um, in that it's so reader centric. Yeah, yes. it's very fan based, yeah. and so it'll, it'll be fun. I, I like it because everything takes place in the bar. I just love when so many the the roar of the conversations that evening that it the roar just keeps getting louder and louder and you just bump into so many people that you're like hey I haven't seen you and it's like this the first for the first time it's a little nerve-wracking because you don't know anybody second time it's a little better and by the time you've been there three four times just like this big old happy reunion I used to look forward to it so much if I have a book coming out I'll look forward to it again (laughs) <laughs> and I, I know in 2019, I didn't really expect to know anybody. And it turned out that I knew a lot of people. So it was it was really fun. And, uh, I you know, my experience is completely different. And I know we've talked about this before, but you're a night person. And you are a person who gets excited by being in the bar and hearing the roar of the conversation. I meet people at breakfast. <laughs> and I see people and I'll gather people around at a table and we'll have, you know, it'll, it'll be, it'll start with like two people. And then all of a sudden there are 10 people and we're pulling tables together. Oh, but and that sounds so awesome. Yeah. So that's, that's the way I enjoy it. I will not be hanging out at the bar in the evening. Um, I'm hope I don't, I haven't checked the baseball schedule. I'm hoping there's actually a baseball game that I can go to. Cause I would like to Ooh. see a game in Minneapolis. I've never, never been to their stadium and I would like to go. So that would be fun, but I'm really excited about going. And if any of you are going, let me know. I'd love. I was just going to say that, but I'm not going to do what you do, Taylor, and say, "Hey, I'm going to be at this certain place at this certain time." Just let us know, and uh, we'll figure out a way to get together. You're going to make people hunt you down and find you, aren't you? It'll be really easy to find me on Saturday (laughs) morning. I don't know what time it is on Saturday morning, 
but I'm on a panel uh, for indie publishers. <gasps> that is so cool. Yeah, so I'm excited. Um, I'm excited about that. Is this your first panel that you are actually on on at BoucherCon? Oh yeah, BoucherCon. Yes, I've been on lots of panels. Oh, of, other of course, yes. Shows, but not not BoucherCon. Yeah, so I'm excited. Oh, so I'm excited exciting. about that. It'll be an interesting topic. I'm excited. The other people that are on the panel are. One of them is a, is a guy whose books I really like to read, and I did not even know he had a publishing company. So I'm excited oh, to meet that him. Oh, so cool. So, so be, yes, guys. kind of fun. If, yeah. if you're a listener and you're going to be at Khan in Minneapolis this year, not only do you need to like contact Steve and let him know you're going to be there, but you need to let me know how his panel goes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know all about it. <laughs> Oh, maybe we yes. can report back on yes. the on the show after it's all over but it'll be fun i'm disappointed that you're not going to be there but uh, now at least i won't be wandering around wondering where you are yeah looking for blue hair which i do not have at the moment <laughs> <laughs> all right so what are we talking about today taylor so this is going to be a little random, a little scattered, but this is another one of those Taylor has been watching TV and has opinions shows. <laughs> Are we ever going to get to the point where it's like Taylor has been watching too much TV? Oh, I'm sure Taylor has already <laughs> been watching too much TV. <laughs> I had to put the kibosh on it. I'm like, nope. It doesn't matter how good they are at making you go, oh my God, I have to just see what happens next. There is a hard cap limit on when it shuts off and that's that. And it's been much better since then. <laughs> <laughs> and see, I never used to watch TV, as I've said before. Like, this is all new to me. So it's like letting a kid just wander and choose three freely in a, in a candy shop. Like, I just started watching Sopranos, which has been out for forever. Oh, and yeah. it's been like, oh, this is really well done. I can see why people would talk about it. And, stuff. and you you can't even imagine what it was like for the rest of us 20 years ago to start watching a show on a Saturday night and then to have to plan your Saturday nights around that for the next 30 weeks. Yeah, I have no concept of that. I have no concept of having to record shows or TiVo or any of that. I came to life as a TV watcher in the streaming era. So this is quite hilarious, really. I'm like a Zoomer or a millennial when it comes to, <laughs> comes to that aspect of my life experience. Before you get, anyway. before we get into this, I, I want to ask you a question. And I, I, I don't know whether we've talked about this before. I don't think so, but we may have. And if, if we have, I apologize. But one of the things that I find interesting about the way television works now and, and the quality of the television it's, it seems so relevant to writing today where so many books, the success of the books is dependent upon the success of the series. So in many instances, you're not just writing a book, you're writing a series. So writers today are almost, it's almost as though they're planning for a television season, you know, not 25 episodes, but you know, maybe when you start planning your book, you're actually planning a storyline that's going to go for eight books that could then become 25 episodes um, if the gods smiled on you. But I, I think that's interesting, the way writing has shifted towards longer series at the same time this streaming thing has come along 
and the quality of the writing in these series has gotten so good. I don't know if that's related in any way. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I honestly don't know. I mean, if someone was to ask me about it, I would say, I don't think writers are doing that because, I mean, the number of books that actually ever get optioned, much less the number that get sold, are just just so few compared to however many books there are. It would be a mistake. All right. So let me let me jump in here and and rephrase what I was saying, because I wasn't saying that authors are writing this way so that they can get their material onto the whatever, whatever it is now. It's not the silver screen, but this other screen. But so many authors now are planning, um, and let's just use the, the you know an eight book series, a six book series, or something. So from the planning standpoint, it is as though they're planning for a television series, even though it's in reality it's six books or eight books or whatever it is. They they've yeah. got this overarching story arc that's going to take from book one to book six, with individual stories for each book. I wonder if that differs a little bit from indie writing to um, trad trad pub writing because uh, with indie writing you always you you have that level of control you you know okay I'm going to make this a six book series and then you can do that but when you're in trad pub you don't know unless your contract is for six books you don't know that you're going to get six books they at some point they'd be like yeah it's not selling well enough so uh, we're not going to continue this show us what else you got. And if what, what else you got isn't interesting enough to them, then they're like, yeah, no, we're going to take, we're going to pass. And then you're back to square one. And that happens just like, that's an incredibly common experience. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you can plan your books out that way. It doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it as a traditionally published author. But I think as an indie author, you have a lot more control over that in that way. Okay. Good distinction. All right. Back to you, Taylor. i was like we could keep talking about this This is very very interesting to me um so uh, taylor has opinions so um yeah uh i you know i watch tv and and i see things and it you know i'm like hmm makes me think and so i had two that that came to me over the last few weeks that i was like "Eh, let's talk about this so the first is this idea of utilizing cliches and expectations as an actual tool for storytelling, whether like create red herrings or other unexpected twists or whatever. And so this particular, the, the thing that triggered this concept to me, it kind of touches at the edge of the uncanny valley, but in terms of human to human interaction. So the uncanny valley, I like. I just went and googled this to make sure that I'm getting it right. So, in aesthetics, which is a branch of philosophy that deals with the nature of beauty and taste, as well as the philosophy of art, uh, the uncanny valley is a hypothesized relation between an object's degree of resemblance to a human being and the emotional response to the object. And the concept suggests that humanoid objects that imperfectly resemble actual human beings provoke uncanny or strangely familiar feelings of uneasiness and revulsion in observers. And the valley part of it denotes a dip in the human observer's affinity for the replica, a relation that increases with the replica's human likeness. So there's 
probably a more accurate term for the same sense of uneasiness that deals specifically with human to human interaction, but I don't know what it is. And this was the closest I could get to a word that, to this sense of it with a word that I'm familiar with. But what I'm getting at here is that most of us, we have this sort of spidey sense, like this inner bullshit Geiger counter that starts going off when the people we encounter behave in ways that violate our sense of what's normal behavior. So if the person is someone we know well, that sense of uneasiness is going to go off when they behave outside what we perceive to be normal for them. And if it's someone that we don't know, it's going to go off when they behave in a way that we perceive as being unnormal in our understanding of how the world works or whatever. So like, say, for example, um, someone is really friendly and eager to you, eager to please, eager to make you happy, but it's on the outside of how you've understood friendliness and eager to please, then you're going to immediately question their motives. Like, okay, what do they want? What's the real agenda here? you're, You're put off by it and it puts you on edge. And like, whatever triggers that sense of unease, it's going to be completely different person to person, like based on, you know, things like socio and economic status or family experience, life experience. Like, for example, if some person's like a wealthy, powerful person, right, they're going to have a completely different reaction to an overload of friendliness from someone who's known to be a ladder climbing backstabber than they would to a random person who's sitting beside them on a train who has no idea who they are. One of them, they'd be a little more like spidey senses that like something's weird here is going to go off. And the other, they might just have this really sweet, innocent conversation with a really friendly old grandma or whatever, right? Someone who's living on the streets is going to have a completely different response in this uncanny valley area of like some kind stranger putting a McDonald's gift card in their hand than from someone who pulls up in an SUV and invites them home for the evening. Like just different things trigger this sense of this inner Geiger counter, but we all carry it. Like we all have this inner Geiger counter thing that makes our alert systems go off. And the difference is just what's triggering it or how much is triggering it. And it's not a flawless system. Like I'm sure there's like an, I'm sure an evolutionary uh, biological com- survival component to it, but it, it it's not sur- it's not flawless. So sometimes, like just getting thrown into an environment that's so far outside your baseline for normal, that can make it really easy to misread someone else's normal as like a red flag. And if like if you're used to everyone treating you like crap all the time, and then all of a sudden someone comes along and they're treating you with kindness and respect you're going to be immediately distrustful of that behavior because it's it's so different from what you're used to. It's just safer to reject it and treat it with suspicion than to give it the appropriate response, even if you're craving it, even if you're valuing it, right? So that's what I'm kind of talking about when I'm talking about this sense of unease, this uncanny valley, something's wrong with this. And it all comes into play with storytelling, okay? So like, Their stories, or at least most of the stories that I've watched, the stories that I've read, I am sure there's plenty of variety out there, but I'm just, this is my experience, right? 
that you have these characters who are kind and caring and supportive, or they're zealous advocates of others, but there's not a real clear reason why they're they're that way. Like, in other words, they're not family members. They're not uh, really close friends from childhood. They're just someone who's being an advocate for this particular issue. And nearly inevitably, straight across the board, they turn out to be bad guys in these stories, like someone the character shouldn't have trusted. And it's it's consistent enough that anytime I see a character in, in stories, in movies, film, whatever, who's in a position of power, who's shown as being quite uh, emphatically, zealously trying to do the right thing out of principle, that just almost immediately puts a target on their back, bad guy at least for me, because it's just just like it happens all the time in movies. You, you almost never see someone in a story portrayed as just so adamantly trying to do the right thing out of principle, even when there's nothing in it for them, even when they don't know the main character, just because it's the right thing to do. You almost, I, maybe others, have seen it a lot, but I've almost never seen that shown in any way that that person actually turns out to not have had an ulterior agenda, to just have been a really good person that the main character happened to come in contact with. When you do find people like that in stories, they usually end up dead as someone that gets killed along the way. You know, oh, you were driving along in your pickup truck and the main character is off the road hitchhiking and you just stopped and you know, decided to help, and now the bad guys find you and kill you. Like, it's just like clockwork. That's just how it goes. So I was reminded of that recently when I was watching a show, and there was this side character. It was a politician-type figure, and they were fighting for um, a particular type of reform that was going to completely upend the status quo. And it was made quite clear in the story that being so adamant about wanting to make these changes because they're the right thing to do is going to destroy their career and they were like I don't care this is my legacy I'm going to do this and so this character was first introduced pretty early in the show and wasn't really clear at that point what their role was going to be in the story as a whole like how it was all going to tie together but the minute they started talking about this reform and about how it was going to benefit these people and how this was their mission in life. And it was like a demographic that's often used as like a political football. Like we're going to screw this, these people over because we don't actually care. But now we're going to say that we're supporting them because it's good press, that type of a thing. Right. And so as soon as this character was like, oh, I believe in this and I, you know, I, I'm going to stake my career and I don't care if it destroys me. I went, bad guy. <laughs> so I don't know if the show creators were like intentionally telegraphing that or not. I don't know if they were even aware of the way that these types of characters are telegraphed exactly in that way. All I know is that you just really rarely ever see side characters that they're, it's the story's not about them, but they can influence. And they definitely play a role in what's happening. You just rarely see those types of characters that are come across as being genuine 
and principled and ethical and willing to set aside their own self-interest for the greater good turn out to actually be principled and ethical and willing to set aside their own self-interest for the greater good. There's always bad guys. You just don't see good characters like that. And it got me thinking about that, like about the subsurface cliches that go on in that. Like they're not in your face. They're not super obvious the way that most cliches are. And like in this particular instance of this particular show, I mean, I was right about the bad guy part, but the show handled it in a way that kind of kept it away from being like this full on cardboard caricature. And and there were authentic reasons for the behavior or whatever. Okay, good, good, good job. Good writing. But it got me thinking about how as storytellers, understanding the cliches, being aware of them, you can actually utilize them to turn things on their head and get your audience thinking that things are a certain way. And then it turns out not to be that way because the cliches that we all are used to seeing, but maybe even aren't aware of seeing, just automatically puts it in our head that bad guy, but turns out not so much, right? And so like, if you're looking for red herrings or you're looking for ways to create plot twists, playing with these underlying things that are just out there, it's just the way that it always seems to be. And so the audience just automatically does what I do. (laughs) Bad guy. You take it and you turn it on your head so that the audience is thinking one way because of that. And it's not even anything you specifically did. It's just the zeitgeist of the time of how things are done that it automatically misleads them. And you can use that and twist it like where the whole time the audience is thinking bad guy. And it turns out that no, actually this is a really good guy who actually was ethical and moral, whatever. And the bad guy is this other person who you weren't looking at because you were so focused on this good person over here, like that type of stuff. I thought, you know, it would be really cool. Like I would have gotten, that would have spun me. Like I was like, I did not see that coming because I never see, no, this never does come that way. Right. At least not in the stuff that I've been watching. So yeah, I don't know. That was just something that got me thinking about how sometimes the cliches aren't even They're not so in your face that you even realize they're cliches. It's just, that's just usually, I guess enough writers are using this as their twist that now it's so familiar. You don't, you just expect it, everybody else to keep doing it the same way. Anyway, I'm sure there's like a bazillion of those types of cliches out there that are are not so obvious that we don't think of them as cliches. And yet they're still guiding our, interaction the way we perceive these characters in a specific way without our awareness simply because of how it's always done so that was the first thing that I was like huh that's interesting that I wonder what I'm thinking I wonder how I can utilize that in a story um so I haven't I don't know how yet but I'm definitely now that's that's on my radar I'm like hmm the second one has to do with, I guess, the difference between dialogue, the difference in dialogue between books and movies. So there's this thing that I, that happens on screen that I don't know how long I've been aware of it, but it annoys me. It's been a while now. And what will happen is like a character will ask a question of another character. 
But instead of giving just like a simple, straightforward answer, the character who's being asked launches into this story that, you know, it answers the question in sort of a really roundabout way. And it leads to a deeper sort of metaphorical answer, but it, it takes a while to get there. So like the character would say, why did you do that? And the character they're talking to will just look at them like they're thinking and go, well, when I was five, my dad started taking me with him to his job on Friday afternoons. And every Friday after work, we'd swing by Jimmy's ice cream for a big scoop. And my dad, he's this big man, burly, strong, strong, silent type. But he also had this reputation for being hot-headed. So most people tended to give him wide berth, but not Jimmy. And then you get this whole story about dad and Jimmy and whatever. And like two minutes later, you sort of piece together, or maybe the, her- the, the character kind of pieces together, what this has to do with the question being asked. And I find this to be just, this is kind of irritating because nobody, or at least no one I have ever met in my entire life interacts like this. Like these are long-winded biographical answers and no matter how well they're acted, they always feel to me anyway, like sort of a Disney Epcot version of dialogue. So like what I mean by that is like Disney Epcot Park is like this international thing where each part of the park each segment of the park has like its own country and the Disney representations. I mean, they're clever in the way they go about approximating those various locations, but still clearly this sanitized entertainment version is is nowhere near close to the same thing. It's, it's fake. And that's how those types of conversations, this, biographical answers that's how that dialogue feels to me i would guess most viewers wouldn't notice it but like for me i i live with words day in and day out and i spend an enormous amount of time creating characters and crafting dialogue and so to me it's jarring to me those type of on-screen interactions they feel really scripted And the dialogue is like whittled down and honed for the highest emotional punch, which, I mean, that's fantastic writing. It's just horrible dialogue because, like I said, nobody talks like that. So it jumps out at me and it frustrates me. Some versions of it are more frustrating than others. If it's small, if the story is really compelling, I might not really notice it quite as much. But if it happens twice, three times in the space of, you know, one or two episodes. And if like the answering part of the conversation goes on a long time, it's just, it yanks me out of the story so hard. Like all I can do is just sit there and glare at the screen, just and wait for it to be over and feel all the angry feelings. So it happened recently in this otherwise fantastic show twice, back to back, like at the end of one episode and maybe the middle of the next. And both times it was, long answers and it it was enough that I was like why are they doing this and then I went oh oh yeah I wasn't supposed to see that was I because basically I'm seeing the curtain rip back and I'm looking at a technique the reason it happens so often is it's a technique and this is how books differ from movies like in books you get all that inner dialogue you can tell all the characters background 
uh, we can hear the character's thoughts. But on film, you only know what you see and what the characters say. And while you might know a lot about the main characters driving the story, generally there just isn't enough screen time to fully delve into the side characters and their lives and their motivations and what's driving them to do what and why are they making these decisions that may not necessarily be in their own best interest. This is the, what I'm assuming or as I'm interpreting to be, the screenwriting version of Arrow and Square, (laughs) making sure that the really dumb thing that the character does is not dumb by the time it happens. and what those long-winded conversation, those long-winded answers are doing are giving you a peek into who this character is, what's driving them, why they're making the decisions that they're making, and they're doing it very concisely in terms of, um, you know, maybe a paragraph of, of dialogue that, you know, translates to maybe a minute, minute or so of screen time. But it covers so much territory and the conversation, that question, you know, why are you doing this? You know, why are, why are you still here? Why haven't you gone home? Just those types of questions, those are lead-ins to give the character a chance to tell the audience all these things they otherwise have no way of knowing about themselves. And because your uh, opportunities for doing that on screen are limited to either showing that character in their own individual personal life or showing it through something that they say, if you haven't got the screen time or the the individual life is not integral to the story, that's not an option. Here's your technique. Here is how you convey this information and humanize this character on the screen. So now that I understand what's going on, at least the way that I've interpreted it, it doesn't mean that it's any less annoying, but at least I'm kind of what they were boxed into and that's why it shows up so often it is a technique here's how you can like that's what this like on our show we're constantly giving you techniques and hacks that you can do in your writing life that is essentially here is a screenwriting hack for how you can blah 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 and you're not supposed to see it but because i (laughs) spend so much time in story i can't help but see it i was like oh i wasn't supposed to see that so anyway that was just an interesting observation to me of like, oh, that's why they do that. And I'm telling you about it. And that's, those were my two Taylor has opinions about TV things for today. <laughs> so it, in the first one, when you were talking about cliches and kind of turning them on their head as a, um, as, as a, as a way of creating plot twists or, dropping red herrings and things like that. I remember hearing a story about Agatha Christie. And this was years and years and years ago, obviously, when she was writing lots of short stories as as well as novels and things like that. And she got tired of people figuring out and explaining how they figured out how who did it, uh, essentially, in her books. And one of the ways that they figured it out was that, well, the most obvious person couldn't have done it because then it wouldn't be interesting. So she actually wrote a story where it was perfectly obvious who did it all the way through (laughs) and readers were waiting for that plot twist. There was no plot twist. And that was the plot twist. 
That's hilarious. I love it. And I have only just recently read my first Agatha Christie story, little side daisy trail here. Um, Uh And the one that I started with, which was recommended uh, in a Facebook group to me was, and then there were none. And it is a story in which it's so well, the, the plot twists are so well crafted that the only way to figure out how it happened was through an epilogue, basically a, a confession in a bottle pulled out mm-hmm. of the ocean. Um, because without that, it's like, well, how did this all come together? And so there's this author note that explains the whole, like, why she did it the way that she did it. And I was just like, I dig this lady. I like the way her <laughs> mind works. <laughs> So even though the writing was a little bit old, you know, it's it's not current and the storytelling techniques are not current. I was all in on this because you could see the the mind behind it, the thought that went into it. And I was like, yeah. But the funny thing is, is that when I was reading it, there were things in the story that my brain hiccuped and I went, wait, that doesn't really quite make sense. But I wrote it off as maybe it made sense for the era in which she was living, like, or maybe it was one of those things that the author didn't do quite enough research on. And so they just assumed things were a certain way and wrote it that way. And so I wrote it off thinking, yeah, okay, I'm not going to nitpick this. I'm not going to, you know, but it turned out that if I actually had, I would have totally seen it without the epilogue. So it was it was interesting, you know, in retrospect, like I'm just flowing for the ride and I'm just going to see how it all turns out. I'm going to see whatever. But the stuff that was pinging me going, oh, that doesn't seem right, was the stuff that would have been, <laughs> it was the thing on which it all turned. So I was, that was kind of an interesting experience. All right. So that is Storytelling Observations from the Screen by Taylor or... Taylor, Taylor watches opinions. Taylor, 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 <laughs> Taylor watches TV and has opinions. <laughs> so that's our episode for this week. Uh, thank you all for listening. We will be back with you again next week. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>